Hi everyone, welcome to Training with Casey, where we explore animal training and living our best lives with animals. I'm Joseph Laughlin, producer of this podcast, and now here's your host, Casey Covert. Let's get started. Hi everybody, welcome to Training with Casey. I'm Casey Covert, your host. Thanks for the introduction, Joseph. And tonight, I'm going to talk about one of my dreams coming true. And that dream was bringing my horses home. I have been working with Sarah for um, 29 years. Sarah and I came together when she was three years old, and she just turned 32 at the beginning of this month. We decided that we needed to bring the horses home last year because in June, a fair had an injury which caused her to suddenly go blind. And whereas she had been a very calm horse and not overly connected to the other horses, All of a sudden, she became very prone to agitation, arousal, stress. She would run herself into a frenzy and be sweaty and wet. And this could be precipitated by anything. Horses running, horses moving, horses, you know, new horses coming, horses going. These were all things we couldn't control, and they were normal parts of stable life. So in short, Affair was no longer a good candidate to live at a stable. Along with that, the prices went up significantly. I didn't calculate it. But let's see here. Well, in a matter of six months, they went from four twenty five a month to five seventy five. So that was $150 more in a very short span of time. And there were two horses involved. So it meant that, uh, you know, there had been other price advances in the last five years. So that what used to be an easy thing for me to keep a horse, um, all of a sudden it was like a mortgage payment. And as they get older, they're more prone to needing the vet and so on and so forth. So that was another important element of it. Now, what would keep us from bringing the horses home? Well, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work and you are responsible for it all the time. Uh, You don't necessarily have a staff. And you have to watch over them. You have to think before you even leave the property. In this time, my mother also came to be with us. So we had uh, more responsibilities in general, but also other reasons that we needed to stay close to home. Now, we co-own a fair with a dear friend. So we discussed everything together, Dave and I and Denis, and we all agreed this was a good thing. And especially when Denis uh, visited and saw our property and pronounced that this was a great place to bring horses to. Now, meanwhile, when we first came here, it was our original intention to just keep our horses here at home. So why didn't we? And the reason was because of water and water management. 
So we're not in a flood, not flood plain, flood plain, but it's expected that once in every hundred years, water will reach one of the uh, edges of our property. Well, a few years ago, water touched it three times in one year, and we essentially had waterfront property. I mean, it was flooded even over the road. Now that is not frequent and it hasn't happened since, but for it to happen three times in one year, whoa. So the, you know, we're close to the ocean here and the land is very flat. The highest place on our property is less than six feet above seawater and the water would sit on the soil for days after any heavy rain and the back field which would be most of um, the room for the horses would get very mucky and soggy so what happened to change that well i let everything grow and as a result and we're still testing this out uh, we had a lot of saplings and then we would come through and mow everything. And now that organic matter is in the soil and all the things that we mowed are on top of the soil. And I had read that sometimes people want to add sand to soil like ours, but that actually it's better to add organic matter because with sand, you have to add lots and lots of sand before you make anything better. And up to that point, you make it worse. So an easy way to add organic matter was to let it just grow. And where we live, we have more problems with not growing plants than we do with growing plants. So I'll go through and dig up all the little trees that are near the house or Dave will. And within a couple of weeks, we have a new crop. <coughs> you have to really keep on it because these trees will catch your house on fire. Uh, they'll fall on your house. They'll make a freeway for um, squirrels to get into your eaves. Okay, so we originally wanted to keep the horses here, and then we got discouraged because of water management and the responsibilities. And then we got encouraged by the prices and the change in status of the health of our horses, and also the fact that my favorite thing in the world is to spend time with my horses. And so what better present to ourselves than to actually have them at home? So we um, started the process. And when we started the process, I really tried to find information on how to do this. I wanted to know, you know, step by step, what were the steps? Um, what were the costs, words to the wise, what order did you do things? You know, so not just what you did, but what order you did it in and uh, relative risks. And when we come to relative risks, I'll, we'll talk about it more later, but for example, um, poison plants on your property. You know, how quickly do your horses learn what they shouldn't eat? Do they learn it? And what can we do short of inventorying every single plant? Because I guarantee you, I could look at the entire property and there'd be no poison plants, but next week there could be half of the property could be poison plants. That's how quickly things can change. So when I came right down to it, 
it, it looked like this. I've always dreamed of bringing my horses home, having them right outside the door, being able to check them last thing at night, first thing in the morning, if I heard any strange noises, sharing the day with them, just working side by side, even if we're doing totally different things and not having to drive for an hour to see them or give them medical treatment or make their food. You're not wasting that driving time. But like I said before, I also feared it because I feared my lack of knowledge. I feared being solely responsible, not having an experienced stable owner to uh, you know, bounce ideas off of taking care of all medical monitoring and treatment. Uh, if the animal gets sick, you have to you know, put ointment on their eyes or give them an antibiotics frequently, you know, twice a day, three times a day. And it's a lot of extra. And then I also didn't uh, look forward to leaving the stable community. I want to give a shout out to our stable One Red Maple. And I think we left in good terms. I hope we did. And we really liked the people. All the people, or at least all the ones that I ran into, because I didn't meet everyone. But um, the people were always helpful and caring. And the staff treated our horses like they were their own family. Uh, we got pictures, we got reports, we got, um, you know, feedback where people were staying with the horses during the storm and feeding them when it was freezing cold and cleaning up after them and all those things they did for us. So leaving just an excellent staff and excellent care and concern and an excellent community but we decided to do it. So we made the decision. That was the first thing. The second thing was the outline. And this um, series of podcasts on bringing the horses home, I'm going to approach it from the perspective of the project manager aspect of it. So we're trying to operate our whole lives more like a business. <laughs> Way are we working against type? But the first thing after making a decision to bring the horses home was to make a plan. And that plan included lots of time on Google Maps where I charted out all the different ways we could put the fences and how much room we actually had and so on. And from there, I made a list. And it was of all the different kinds of tasks. So I'm going to take you through some of those tasks. Uh, just to give you an idea up front, now, I'm also going to just briefly touch on other tasks that had to be done, you know, that had to be integrated with this whole thing, like, um, you know, shopping for food, right? And gardening, because we try to grow as much of our food as possible. And I'm going to give it to you in a really fast way. So, um, like I said, a big part of the work was to make this outline that I'm going to read from. And in the outline, we had to figure out all the work we had to actually perform and you know, give it a you know rough order, which of course we had to change frequent times. So the first thing was the earthworks because we had to get, we only have a couple of acres, just a few acres. And the acre that might be the pasture uh, had grown up with saplings and that was part of the plan, but it had to be cut 
and cleared. And oh, by the way, what I learned after the fact is we should have just cleared it and not cut it. So it's okay to cut it every year and you know, let to, when you're trying to enrich the soil and add organic matter, but when you're actually ready to get ready for the horses, don't cut it because these people that do the earthworks can come in and just clear the trees. They yank them right out of the ground. So what do you do with all those trees? Well, we decided we wanted to make a windrow and a windrow is just a pile of dead trees and dirt and horse manure that goes around the field. And there were lots of reasons to do this. For one thing, we had all these, you know, we, we had to do something with all these roots and they would add to the soil. They're still organic matter, right? But they would also form a physical barrier between the horses and our home and the spraying of the fields. Now the farmers here don't seem to do a lot of spraying, but it's still very toxic. And we don't want it on our property. So we figured if we stacked up all these trees, and by the way, all the old lumber, we had two wood piles, which are really good if you garden because they breed um, different kinds of beetles and so on that help eat the things that eat your garden. They also give a place for snakes to be, but we didn't want that in the pasture. So we just moved it all to the windrow. So all the roots that they grubbed up, this is grubbing is when they go through and remove the trees or the roots from the soil. So we ended up with uh, quite a large windrow. I mean, it was at least 100 feet long total and probably about two, in some places, three feet high. And then through the years, we'll just keep adding to it. For example, uh, we just cut some trunks off of a Bradford tree, a pear tree, and we're not going to use that particular lumber. We're just going to drag it out there. And everything that the horses produce that we don't decide to compost a different way, we will put all that manure and we'll put uh, plants, you know, dead plants and cardboard and whatever on top of the windrow. What's going to happen is it will make a mound all around the outside of our property focused on the east side and the south side. And the winds are going to come in in the wintertime from the northeast. And so that'll give some protection as well. It will also give a place for all those animals that were in the woodpile to move to and that supports the local owls and hawks that can hunt them. It gives us a place to expand what we grow for the horses. So we can't, there are many foods that are good for the horses, but we can't grow them in that horse's pastures because they just won't survive. But it includes herbs like goldenrod or raspberry. Raspberry leaves can be very good for horses just as they are for people. Um, we have a vitex tree and we have a lot of plants that are good for horses. Plantain, uh, onions, wild onions, they say that horses don't like those, but sometimes they preferentially go out and eat onions in the springtime mints, different herbs, different uh, rosa rugosa with the rose hips. And they love those rose hips. Um, berries, you know, could be good for them. But you have to have a place to produce them. So if we let these windrows go, 
they're going to grow a lot of things. And we're going to try to give the things we want to grow a head start. And for the rest of them, we're getting goats. More on that later. And by the way, we were very careful not to throw any of the vines we dug up on the windrow because it would just ruin everything immediately. Okay, so getting back to the outline, we were going to remove various trees, some of them rather large. And by the way, we still have to cut some branches and we haven't done that yet. We had to, oh my gosh, it's a huge list of plants that we had to remove. We wanted to excavate a 60-foot diameter round pen. And what this meant is we were going to dig it four inches deep and fill it with sand. And it slopes just a little bit on each side, so it's higher in the center. And this means that the water will flow out pretty easily. And that was the plan, and it does. It's been just fine during our bigger rains lately. So um, we also put a ditch on one side of the property and enlarged the swale on another side. And we had decided that we would need to leave about a quarter to a third of the pasture acre in trees because the soil tended to be so wet. But we went ahead and ditched it, and we only ditched it about a third of the way in. But that made such a big difference that even after rains, when we went out and checked the property, it was still dry or dry enough. There'd be water sitting in the ditch still, but it wasn't in the soil. So all of a sudden we were able to change that plan and make that available to the horses or that that's the current plan. Now we also needed lots of wood chips for the general management of the property. And so we thought we would figure that out. We're hoping to widen the driveways. Um, I already mentioned we cleaned out and enlarged the swales. And we wanted to make a drive to the area that the horses were going to be in. Now, meanwhile, we had to keep up with our garden. And the garden marches to its own schedule. I mean, when I could tell it that the priority was to bring the horses, but it doesn't matter. You know, it, when it's time to do the stuff, you have to do it. So we have, or we had three hugel beds and we had four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. We had ten raised beds. And this year we added another seven. And we added a fairly large area of potatoes that we're doing the root stout method. So it's really easy. I hope to goodness it worked. So we had to get all those beds ready. We made another hugel bed. If you don't know what a hugel bed is, I really love them. And what we use them for is planting perennials. So one of the easiest ways to start gardening is to grow herbs because they're generally really easy. You don't need a lot of them in a small space. You can have, when I say a lot, you don't need to grow rows and rows of rosemary. You can have one or two plants and that'll be plenty. And the same with sage and oregano. And you, know, you can just have small plantings and supply everything you need. And they are so nutrient rich. You know, they're medicines. They make food worth eating. They're, um, they smell great. They deter fleas and things like that. So a hugel bed is a 
bed, a, a growing bed that is made, first of all, by stacking logs. You can stack them in any direction, but the idea is to give it a wood core. And generally, you put the bigger logs in first, and then you add smaller branches and so on around it. And then on top of that, you're going to add uh, paper, cardboard, uh, clippings, leaves, weeds, compost, dirt. And when you get it all piled up and you cover it with dirt, then you can plant things in it. And it takes it a few years, but as the wood inside rots, it absorbs water from the ground around it and it becomes self-watering. So we did um, all kinds of herbs and flowers that are great for pollinators, raspberry bushes, chamomile, oregano, sage, catnip, catmint, uh, three kinds of thyme, cone flowers, different kinds of salvias, different kinds of mint. We have chocolate mint and peppermint and curly peppermint and spearmint and apple mint. We have bee balm. And then nestled in there, we have American beauty berry, which is a great anti-bug thing, but you can also use the berries for jelly or syrup. And we have elderberries, which are great for your immune system, and they can be very tasty. And this is in addition to all those other garden beds I was telling you about. Now, once we make the bed, in general, we also will make a top for it. And we make the top out of one by threes, and they're eight feet tall. So the bed on the bottom is eight by three feet and the um, top of it is eight by three feet, but lighter lumber. And it's eight feet tall. And we just loop strings over that top rail, pin them into the ground using little pins. And then everything that needs a support to grow up gets to live in one of these beds. And it makes a huge difference. Growing our tomatoes this way, we use little clips that clip onto the strings and we use at least three millimeter string for our tomatoes, zucchinis, that kind of thing. And you can use two millimeter string for beans. But uh, we did all that and we actually can grow like 21 tomato plants in one of these eight by three beds. And down the middle of the row, we plant things that help tomatoes grow, like green onions, basil, parsley, cilantro. And the parsley and the cilantro will support eastern black swallowtails. And so we plant lots of those and lots of different kinds of basil for us and so on. So we practice a lot of companion planting. So we had to get all those beds made top and bottom by soil to go in them, line them with cardboard to keep the soil in them, fill them with soil, and then plant everything. In the meantime, we were also growing seeds under the grow light, but some of the things, I didn't grow enough things successfully. So I also had to buy a lot of seeds. And by the way, um, I have to keep starting more seeds because every six to eight weeks, you have to plant new cucumbers, beans, zucchini, things like that. So it's a lot of work, but we got it all done. So meanwhile, back to the horses. We figured out where we would put our horse paddock. And it was pretty large. I thought, oh yeah, the horses could eat there for quite a while, I think. And then we could open that back acre and only two horses, they could probably live there all year. Spoiler alert, that wasn't realistic. 
So we figured that we were going to use um, T-posts for our fencing and livestock wire. But we had to protect the horses from the T-posts tops. They're, they uh, could stick you in the eyeball. So we would have to figure that out. And remember, we have to make sure that our swales are all operational. And gates, gates can be kind of expensive. A gate that's um, a wide one, like six to 12 feet, is going to probably cost you two to five hundred dollars. And we knew we would need at least two large gates. Then um, hay and feed, where are you going to keep that? So we had to figure that out. And how were we were going to waterproof it so that our hay didn't all mold. But while you waterproof it, you also have to have plenty of circulation. So those were all things that we had to figure out. Now, we already had a lean-to in place. And we thought we could let the horses just, you know, live there. So what has to happen in the lean-to? Well, if the weather's bad, the horses should be able to get in there and, you know, get out of the bad weather. They can eat there. You can take them in there to do their hooves or their treatment or their grooming. And... Uh, since a fair can't see, we wanted to make sure that it was as easy as possible for her to navigate. So we're not putting very much in it. It just has hay bags hanging from the side so they can eat their hay. And stall matting on the bottom. And it has two posts that come out a bit from the wall that a fair might run into. And so we found a way to kind of shelter those to help protect her from that. Now, in addition to uh, the walls to keep the wind from coming through in the winter time, breaks in the walls to let the sun and the air come through, uh, brackets for hanging you know, everything that you need, lead ropes, tools, all this, and places that were out of the way that the horses wouldn't be able to attack themselves with the things hanging on the wall. We got mats, and it turns out that it took nine mats to cover most of this floor. And uh, mats are a special joy because they're very serviceable and they make a lot of things better. Uh, it's softer, it's warmer or cooler, you know, depending on what you need. They're very resilient. You can wash them. One side is textured and the other side is less textured. So you put one side up when you want the horses to have an easy footing inside and the other side up if you're going to use them to pave any of your paddock, which is a big part of our plan. You also have to be able to hang your water buckets in there. And uh, we want to hang some hammocks in there. Not all the time, but when we want to spend time with the horses. We kind of plan to have some sleepovers. Then not part of the lean-to, but you have to figure it out. How are you going to get water to these animals? Now, you can do it just by hanging buckets. You just have to keep an eye on them. And some people get a little overboard about it because you need to have plenty of clean water. But I'd actually rather have to change buckets frequently than have to scrub big tanks. And there's a problem, like if uh, opossums can get into your tanks, there's a disease that they can spread to your horses that you really don't want that to happen. So you have to figure out your water, how you're going to get it there, where you're going to keep it, how you're going to keep it, how you're going to get it warm enough in the winter time. Then they had something that um, we have 
decided not to use yet, but we may have to go back to it. Because the stall mats have different texture on one side than the other, we were able to, or we think we're able to replace this with stall mats, which are a lot less expensive. But the other thing we were planning to get were paddock grids. And these are, uh, sometimes you see them used for driveways. They're kind of like just grids that you can, they're, they make a frame to hold the gravel for your driveway or um, the shavings for your horses or the mud. So that even if you have a really mucky area, that if the horses had access to walking around on it, they would end up, yeah, just creating a total mud pit, whether they meant to or not. You can take these grids and put them right on top of the mud and it distributes the horse's weight and so forth so that they have a reasonable walking surface but they're very expensive. They were like $20 for a uh, 20 inches square. So that was expensive. And suffice it to say that if we can use stall mats for that, it'll cost less than half. Okay, so we're going to have to, well, we think we're going to need to store some shavings. We're not using shavings right now. By moving the horses in the summertime, we gave ourselves some breathing room to get everything finished. We're going to need, and did forget, to get muck buckets and a cart, uh, little shovels and cherry pickers to clean up after the horses. Dave wants an ATV to move manure, hay, feed bags, and... Now, don't just like go take this idea first because I've been planning to do this ever since I was at the National Zoo where I just thought, man, why don't we teach these animals to use a latrine? If they'd be willing to back up and defecate in a latrine that we, you know, we could put our cart there with the wheels on it ask the horses to just defecate directly in there and just wheel it out to the windrow easy peasy rather than having to walk around after them and try to shovel this stuff up off the grass. And it's important to do because it helps to control smell, flies, worms, parasites, other things like that. So one thing that we that's in the more extended plans is to get a large water tank. And we'll talk about that more later. And surprise, surprise, there's more miscellaneous costs that I haven't talked about. So that is the basic outline. Will it surprise you to learn that as soon as I did that, I ended up having to make a more um, detailed outline, one that outlined how many gates I need, how many sheets of plywood, how many two by fours, how many loads of dirt, how many T-posts? How many yards of wire? Yeah, we're still there. Now, how long did it take me to do all that? Quite a bit of time. And I'm still doing it. I still have to redo parts of it as real life intervenes. Now there's a lot more to this. And so I'm going to go ahead and continue it. We, we talked about making the decision and the outline. And next time we'll talk about working with contractors and actually putting the plan to action. But I would like to give you an update.
we planned to move the horses on June 19th. And that was a Friday. But the truck that was going to transport them turns out we suddenly found out it needed new tires. So that postponed it. <coughs> Excuse me. I haven't had a full-blown cold or flu in many, many years. Did I mention that doing a project like this may up your stress load? And I got my first cold in years so that I was laid low right on the most critical week. When I say laid low, boy, I couldn't even open my eyes practically. Anyway, I'm almost over it. But when uh, we did go to actually take the horses, the first thing was getting the horses loaded. And a fair went right in. But Sarah has a really good friend at the stable. And I've been telling her, and if you don't think that animals can uh, manage these concepts and understand these things and manage the vocabulary, you owe it to yourself and your animals to put it to the test. I'm not asking you to believe me. I'm asking you to do the work yourself because we've done it and they can understand all kinds of things. So I'd already explained to Sarah that we were building an area and we were bringing her and a fair home. And she would have to leave her friend. But it turns out her friend is leaving anyway, like a week or two after Sarah was going to move. But nonetheless, when I asked Sarah to get in the trailer, she was indecisive. She came partly on and then got back off again. And then she started to come on again. And I said to her, if you don't, Come, if you stay at the stable, your friend is going to leave in another week or two. We can't control that. But if you come home, we'll be there. And we'll be able to spend more time together. And I'm not planning to ever sell or move either one of you. Like we might move to a new place altogether. But we really will do everything we can not to have to, you know, separate the horses or anything like that. So uh, when we left, a fair's friend was crying out for her. And she's been a really good friend to a fair. I jumped out of the truck and I went and I told her, thank you for being such a great friend. And we have to go. And I gave her some rose hips that... um our friend who was uh, driving the trailer, right? It's her trailer and she was helping us. And she's also, shout out to Cassia Roger. She is learning osteopathy for horses and energy healing. And she's very good. But anyway, she had brought me rose hips. We're going to try to plant them for the horses. And I gave some to Crystal and she just loved them. Now, um, the horses had had eye flare-ups, both of them, in the last month, requiring emergency vet visits. And Sarah had had gastrointestinal upset. And she had some significant diarrhea. So I was really concerned yeah, you, you hope to have the horses in their peak condition before you move them because it's very stressful to move them. And at the National Zoo, they used to teach us that an animal had a three times greater than normal chance of getting sick or dying for an entire year after a significant stress like a move. By the way, that's a reason that zoo animals are always quarantined. 
it's not that we think people sent us bad animals that are sickly. It's that all animals and all people are always carrying subclinical infections. Well, anyway, when the horses got here, we left them in the trailer for just a little while to let them calm down. You don't, I don't like to let the animal um, out while they're still like really intent, like let me out of here, that kind of thing. We try to train them well ahead of time and teach them what's going to happen, how to cope with it. And then we kind of just, you know, yeah, this isn't a big deal. This is, we just traveled somewhere and just calm down and relax a little bit. And then we'll come out and have a snack and so on. That's how we treat it. So the animals were very calm and quiet upon arrival. But Sarah in particular was subdued. And she kind of was, she had very sleepy eyes. That was Monday. Today is Thursday. Her stools have firmed right up. I've noticed both she and Affair are doing less shaking of the heads. Their eyes are brighter. And for right now, they're living a simplified life for at least 30 days. So there's no training, no big exercise, or not even any warming yet. We're going to start mild exercise tomorrow if weather permits. And what that will be is 10 minutes of walking after breakfast in the round pen. And then we'll do it again at night. And we'll talk about this more later, but this is part of our management plan for the entire family for metabolic syndrome. So everybody in our family, regardless of built, like I've always had to really, really work to keep my weight down. And Dave is tall and slender, but it turns out that uh, we both got diagnosed with metabolic syndrome. And so we had to change what we eat and when we eat it and lots of other things. It's the same thing for the horses. Sarah was um, diagnosed with having met, uh, insulin resistance and they put her on percent more on that later, but she doesn't tolerate it and she won't eat her food. She started losing weight right and left on percent. So is there another option? Yes. Thank you for asking. You can go with a low carb, higher protein diet and exercise. The exercise can move the nutrition into the cells without medication and empower the cells to actually use it. So that is a good thing. So we're going to put it to the test and I'll, I'll keep you posted. Okay, next time, I'll tell you about the other things that we've encountered recently. So I'll give you an update on our recent experience. And we'll also talk about contractors and moving the plan to action. Whew. Boy, has this been a lot of work. But I've got to tell you that it's been such a pleasure already just to have the horses home. And we actually don't mind all the work. There is a lot of work involved in it. But we really like the horses. We like just being out there with them. And so it's just worth it. Hey, thank you for spending time with me. It means really a lot to me. And I appreciate you. If you help us get the word out, I would really appreciate it. And as you know, when you like, comment, subscribe, share, all those things really help our podcast 
become established, the more people will find it. And of course, the point of this podcast is to bring people and animals together. We want to support all of you and all of us to live our best possible lives with animals. So thank you. And please make comments. I'd love to hear from you what's going on. And uh, thanks for coming. Take care. Hey fans, are you enjoying training with Casey? Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Casey Covert on YouTube. That is youtube.com forward slash C slash Casey Cover. Also, give the podcast a like, share, and comment. Thanks for joining us. Come back for more news and views on animal training and living with animals. Stay at the top of the pack with Casey. This is Joseph Laughlin, producer of Training with Casey. See you next time.